All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Planker Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Schaefer, and today we have a very special episode for you guys. Just yesterday, LJ Strenio announced his retirement from professional skiing, and today we got the chance to sit down with him and go over some of the greatest moments from his career. This episode will be up tomorrow, technically, so this news will be two days old, but we had a great chat, and it was really cool getting to go over his whole career, uh, basically from start to finish. If we miss anything or anyone, it's just because there was so much stuff to talk about, and uh, honestly, it probably just slipped our minds. Shout out to everyone that submitted viewer questions. If you missed out on that this time, you can catch it next time on our Instagram, at twoplankerpod. As always, if you like the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating. Uh, Shoot us a DM if you have a guest request, because I look at all the messages, and it actually helps to get to know uh, who you guys want to see. Uh, That is it for the intro. Here's LJ. back with another episode and uh would you like to introduce yourself i'm sure everybody knows who you are at this point <laughs> uh yeah sure my name is uh lj strenio uh and i'm uh i guess uh re- currently retiring uh professional do weird stuff skier <laughs> yeah cool so today we're just gonna do basically like a retirement party for lj to uh kind of just go over your announcement yesterday so uh do you want to walk, walk us through the thinking and uh, just tell us like what led up to your decision to actually, you know, formally declare, hey, I'm going back to amateur status and uh, I'm going to take a not like you're not going to retire from skiing, but, you know, step away from professional duties. So like what led up to what led up to this big announcement that, you know, kind of got everybody fired up yesterday? Yeah, it, well, it's funny that I guess I guess I didn't I didn't really give it enough thought. I didn't I was very surprised by the response i kind of just wanted to make it known that like you know because i'm going to try to like not be on social media very much anymore i'm pretty burnt out on it um so i was like oh, i should you know maybe i i like to be i like to talk to kids when they dm me on instagram and stuff so i didn't want to be ghosting a bunch of random kids so i was like oh, i should maybe make it known like probably not going to be around as much but then of course it, it is like a big deal at least for me so it was a it was a more overwhelming and really nice response than I expected. But I mean, it, the the lead up to it has just been that uh, I have been in school for for like five plus years now, uh, studying computer science, and uh, you know it was a very gradual process going back to school. You know, I'm I was in my mid to late twenties when that happened, and uh kind of just signed up for community college courses on a whim initially um was starting to get the vibe that maybe there would be something else down the line for me outside of skiing eventually um and then it just really grew into like a passion and something i wanted to do uh and thankfully timed really well with me getting older and (laughs) and uh starting to you know feel the the age a little more and more um and I guess long story short, I've just recently finished and uh, you know, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna use the degree, it's it was time to get a job. And I actually spent uh it was actually a couple I've been I've been on the job search for a few months now. Uh and it's it's very competitive and very intense. Um and many rounds of uh long virtual interviews. And uh so I'm super excited to be done and, and get this offer. 
Uh, it's been a long time coming in, in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Have you told people publicly where you're going or is, is that something you're trying to kind of keep under wraps? Uh, just because, just because it's still like, just because I haven't officially had my first day and everything. Uh, and, and I'm so new to like the whole job world from what I've read on like LinkedIn and stuff. I'm, I'm just kind of holding off now. It's not like a huge surprise. Um, it is kind of a, you know, it's a pretty cool company that probably quite a few people I would guess have heard of. I hadn't heard of them though. Um, but they're just uh, a prime candidate for, uh, their San Francisco based company that does, that does work that lends itself really well to needing someone, uh, to do, uh, a lot of text processing and using AI that can read text. Um, but, but yeah, probably maybe just not mentioned for right now, just, uh, because I, I, it's also new to me just to be safe. Yeah, definitely. So you're in, like we were saying before we started recording, you're in Portland, Oregon right now. Uh. Are you going to be working remote or are you going to actually get up and move down to California? Yeah, so that's been the double-edged sword with applying for jobs. You always hear like, oh, they work in tech. They're like, they're going to be so made. There's so many jobs. It's so awesome. Um, and so I am going to be working remote, which from this point forward will be awesome. I can, I'm going to stay in Portland, me and my girlfriend. Um, so super nice there, but applying for jobs uh, you know, you think it's nice because you can apply for a remote job anywhere in the country. You know, I was applying to jobs in New York City as well. But the downside of that is when you're entry level uh, with no experience, that means that you're also applying against this, the pool grows too, basically. So I was applying against all these people with PhDs from all across the country, whereas before everyone went remote, uh, you know, you had to you were only applying against people who wanted to live in the city that you're based in. So it was, even though it was probably more competitive, like locally, you also had less people that you're up against. My my LinkedIn premium that I, I paid the month for was like, oh, this is the other people that have applied for the job you're looking for. And it's like 60 PhDs. And I'm like, oh, how do I compete? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's tough, man. And so, I mean, last time, kind of everybody heard a big career update from you. You were working for uh, NASA as an intern. So how did that experience go? And what kind of happened, you know, immediately after that? Cause we didn't, we got the update, you know, you were living out in the desert, but I didn't really hear much after that. Yeah. And so that was like another consideration when I, uh, just cause I would always like read random comments from time to time, like, is he still working for NASA? So I was like, I should make like some kind of official announcement on my Instagram, but I mean, that all went great. Uh, it was, I guess I, it was just an internship. So it was only four months for the fall. I definitely didn't want to be done skiing yet, um, but it, it was really cool. Um, I moved to Southern California. I moved on to the Air Force base where the sound barrier was broken for the first time. There's it's the only place in the country you'll hear sonic booms on the daily because it's normally illegal uh, just because it's so disruptive. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I had like security clearance and had a dude with a, you know, an M16 at the gate, check my badge every day and drove across the salt flats and, and but, but ultimately just sat at a, in a laboratory at a computer writing code every day. Um, and, and actually the type of coding I was doing was completely unrelated to the field that I'm currently going into. Uh, you know, I'm doing like AI related stuff now, but that was more uh, hardware and uh you know more more you know computer chip related and and uh i guess 
less complex and more more like electrical engineering style. Uh, it's called embedded systems work, I guess, uh, which was really fun. And, and I think it helped on my resume, but ultimately uh, it was just a fun experience, I guess. Yeah. And I got to ask, because I know people are wondering, were there any alien encounters during your time there? <laughs> no, no, no alien encounters that I can talk about. <laughs> uh, I signed a lot of NDAs. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It's uh well actually Area 51 or whatever the lake, whatever Air Force Base is called, is only actually it's pretty far, but as like the crow flies, it's only like a couple ridges over and it's pretty similar just uh you know, that whole area of the country is just like open desert and prime for like you know, like either setting off nuclear bombs or testing experimental <clears throat> aircraft. So yeah, uh, but I, yeah, I think that's where uh, that's where the aliens are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of people talk about aliens, but the sad truth is, it's it's probably just advanced weapons testing going on that they don't want anybody near. Unfortunately. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I think the I think you're probably right ultimately, but it's it's fun to wonder. Yeah, yeah, cool. I mean, so. We can get into uh, a little bit of like the greatest hits from your career. I mean, you've talked like a lot of a lot of the greatest things that you've done have been, you know, talked about a lot, like the backflip onto the pillar and the whale tail. And I mean, we could talk about those, but let's start. At, let's start up at the beginning. Um, you really got your start with the Rails to Riches and Young Gun Open. So like, do any does anything from those really early days stick out to you? Like any encounters with anybody in particular? I mean, I'm sure that's when you were first meeting like everyone from the industry so uh like when you look back on those early days and the start of everything what kind of sticks out to you yeah those those definitely were totally where i got my start and and like i owe so much to line skis but but actually in cyber cartel was kind of uh and mike nick i think it, it was i guess jay lev and line were definitely a major part of it but i think even uh Mike Nick might have even been the original uh, one to think up this whole Young Gun contest. I can't, I can't remember, honestly, but it was the two of those guys scheming together who were both childhood heroes of mine. Uh, you know, they were professional ski boarders and then skiers in, uh, you know, in a time where there was the lines were blurred just because so much was changing with with like the construction of all of skis and stuff. Um, but I think the Young Gun Open was really where I got my start because um, you just opened so many doors for me. I would say that's, I kind of use, that's usually where I consider my like pro career starting. I went from like, you know, getting product here and there to like, you know, I was in, I got to be in the Orage Masters that year, which, you know, I guess kids today might not even know what that is anymore, which seems sad to me. But at the time was like, it seemed like such a big deal. Um, so you know, I think those guys gave me my really first big opportunity. Uh, and, and then Rails to Riches, uh, you know, that was where I was meeting a lot of these like well-established people um, who already were in the industry. But then Rails to Riches, I feel like eventually grew into this big contest that uh, that everyone, you know, for the East Coast was like a huge deal. But th at the time, you know, the first couple of years they had it, it was still pretty quiet, but it was a time when I was getting to meet all of the people that would become my like long time uh, best friends in skiing. Um, you know, I think Garai Dadali won the first year ever. And it was just so much money. I remember he was like 15 or something. And he was like, I have $4,000. 
who was like, that's just a stupid amount of money. Uh, and, and so meeting all those guys from New York, the whole traveling circus crew, and, and then also going down, you know, we had our own crew. Uh, you know, I was skiing with with guys like Whit Foster um, and, and Henny VJ is like one of my original friends who's a, a filmer in the industry now. Um, so, uh, you know, that was that was cool because it was getting to know people who were going to become big players in the industry. Uh, so they both they were both yeah, were very significant for me. Yeah. And that's funny because. You know, you, you when I th at least when I think of the traveling circus, like you're totally a part of it for me. And it's funny that even though you're an East Coast guy, you didn't grow up with these guys in upstate New York. Like you were always a Vermont guy. So what what would you think? Like, because I'm sure it was, uh, it was plenty of years between like you first meeting them and then actually doing the traveling circus. What do you think when you first met like these goons at uh, at Rails to Riches? Like, what was your first impression of that whole crew? Yeah. So. Well, that's a great question because at the time, yeah, it's, it's cool to be so considered part of that crew. But originally, um, ironically enough, me and Whit Foster, both from Northern Vermont, which is like the epicenter of the East Coast skiing, were the outsiders in this tight, like the, the park community back then was so small. And so there was two main groups. You were either like the Western New York crew, as far as like really good skiers were concerned, because like the, you know, at every East Coast contest, the winner was either, I guess, from Quebec, from Western New York or somewhere in New York, or a group of like the Academy kids, uh, Waterville Valley and, and Carabasset Valley Academies were, I think they're still pretty big, but they were huge back then. Uh, and so ironically enough, me and Whit Foster were the two oddballs floating in between um, at every contest. And they were such juxtapositions because like, you have the you have the I hate New York traveling circus was the I hate New York crew back then, um, and you have them who were like the most weird and like I mean just traveling circusy like very unorganized and stuff, but competing at the time, and then but but so so talented. And then on the other you know on the other side of the ring at every contest you have like you know very established really good skiers. Uh, you know, like Andrew Hathaway and Michael Clark, uh, and, and then, you know, guys like Clayton Vila and, and, and Cam and, and Nick Martini, and, and I could just go on and on, but those guys all came from more formal backgrounds, so it was funny going to contests to see those guys who, you know, are, have coaches and are clearly good, but going toe-to-toe -to -toe and, like, definitely uh, evenly matched with all of these weird stinky kids that are now in their thirties and still stinky and just as weird as ever. Um, uh, but, but seeing, seeing that it was like such a strange mix of people. And then me and Wit somehow were somehow the weird ones, even though Burlington should have all of the skiers. Uh, it was good getting to know them though. And it was exactly how you would think, um, you know, they they haven't changed much. They're really passionate about what they do. They've just gotten older, and I would say the same about myself. Hopefully, um, so it, it was it was awesome and more exciting than intimidating because we didn't have a huge crew of people to ski with. So it felt like we found our people. It was like, oh, there's other people out there. Like this is so nice. Yeah, that's awesome. And so you mentioned, uh like the young gun to orage masters pipeline so when you went to when you went to the orage masters were you one of the, like the only really young guys going to it or was there a, like another crew of uh kind of up and coming guys when you first went yeah so you know the last couple of years they did it it was just 
and, and I think it was fun that they changed it to being just kind of whatever crew can go and less organized. But some of the earlier years, you had to be representing part of like a major brand. And so the level of entry was like, way crazy it, it felt like way more difficult to ever you could never just create a team and go if you were like a good skier you had to you had to be on a brand so you know there was other young i guess technically other young riders in the contest but it was because they were like super pros like it was like simon dumont and sammy carlson but they were like super well established and part of team solomon we were the only group of ragtag like we were the only names on the course that no one had heard of like everyone else there might have been a couple young people but like they were like very well established we were definitely the only ones who were like you guys are who the young gun what it's like no we're we want we did we, we get to be here we swear oh that's so awesome man and so i mean so after that what what kind of came next in in uh in your career was this filming with these companies or was it uh college out in utah you know it all it all kind of happened slowly but quickly at the same time uh not like all it was all kind of mixed together uh i i did i didn't want to go to school at all ironically enough but my parents were like just go ski in utah and like live in the dorms and take classes and then you can still ski it'll be fine um and so i think the next probably the biggest change for me was filming with meathead films which was kind of happening around this time as well and i guess i met those guys around that year as well and i just started filming with them and so while i moved out west for school uh i think you know the next major step for me was starting to film with companies like rage films and then eventually poor boys but I never would have gotten noticed in if it weren't for the meatheads and I still continued to come back east like crazy and, and film with them for for years to come. I was very interested in competing as well and competing was never my strong suit, but I did I think like a year or two later is when I finally started to see a little bit of success in like slope style and in big air contests. Um but but I think it was probably always overshadowed by uh by the filming that I was doing uh in and definitely had an easier time getting invites from ski companies or from film companies than I did from like event organizers for, you know, for like due tour or something. Yeah. And so I, I did, I did give you a hint of this before we started, but so rage films, were you in the movie pretty good? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Pretty good was the movie that, that got me hooked on skiing. I, I probably watched that like a million times. And I think it was like Ian Costco's opener where like, all like all it's just basically him trying to like him almost showing his dick the whole intro and it was just like so immature and so funny but whatever happened to rage films i I never was able to find anything like i was super stoked on them maybe even like a couple years delayed because i had it on dvd so i don't even know if it was like current when i was watching but like whatever happened to them so yeah and i'm those guys were awesome and i still keep in touch with a lot of the filmers a lot of the filmers are like good friends of mine and transition to other things i think i think rage fell into this like unfortunate pit of being like the middleman uh, i think meathead films sometimes suffered from this unwell as well unfortunately of being a very legitimate film crew in their own right and having 
uh, you know, putting out like really good movies, but like constantly losing riders, getting called up to like the quote unquote, like big leagues, um, which is ironic because a lot of times I think Rage and Meatheads probably had better, put out better films sometimes than, than like the, than Poor Boys or Level One, which were like the big dogs of the park scene at the time. Um, and, and even like MSP and TGR, obviously. Um, but yeah, I think they were always a lot of times kind of seen as that mid tier company. And so I think, I think they still, I, I don't know at this point, but I'm pretty sure last I heard they were still doing commercial, they were, they did commercial work before they were a ski company, I think. And I think they're still doing commercial work and very successful at it, I think. Um, but I think losing athletes and just that whole struggle and I would imagine like sponsorship dollars and stuff too, was probably tough enough. And they were probably having so much success in the commercial world that I think they pivoted back to just more general, uh, commercial work. Um, but, but I'm not sure, honestly, uh, I, I, yeah. I yeah. Know. Well, if, if, if there's anyone listening that hasn't seen pretty good, I recommend going and looking for it. Cause it's <laughs> just good movie, great soundtrack. Some pretty cool park builds. I mean, so, I mean, from that period of your life, there's, I mean, you were, you worked with so many companies. Is there any like moments that really stood out, you know, any p people you were with, you know, moments or just places that you've gone that like really stuck out to you? Like, damn, I'm loving being a film skier right now. I absolutely love this. Cause I'm sure there's plenty of moments that sucked, but what, what really stood out? Yeah, definitely. And, and man, it's hard to name names because I'm going to forget some, um, yeah. But like, I would say like one of the people I grew to respect in, in view as kind of maybe like a mentor figure the most was Dan Narkunis, who I still keep in touch with from time to time. But, but the other filmers too, like I think the first person I ever filmed with actually was uh, AJ uh, Big St. Fallet, I think is how you say his last name. He was the first one to ever come grab me. And, and then of course, uh, I can't leave out uh, the infamous Pete Alport uh, who was such a hard worker and, and, uh, you know, always, always made sure to push us as hard as we could. Uh, or I guess maybe, maybe Pete, Pete Alpore actually was, uh, he might've done rage stuff, but I think actually I didn't start filming with him until the poor boys days. Um, but, but I think standout, that was such a time of flux for me because I was still kind of coming into my own. I definitely wasn't established yet. And getting the call, I remember getting the call from rage when I was home on Christmas break and treating the phone call like a job interview and it felt like very serious they were like would you like to come film with us and I was just like oh my gosh this is so crazy um but then it ended up just being more of what I was already doing with like the traveling circus guys going out and hitting rails and stuff um but so I think yeah I think the first like major trip I can't remember if it was such as life or pretty good but uh you might actually know better because uh because it sounds like you know pretty good very well but I did, we did this trip to the Midwest and it was uh, me, I think Gus Kenworthy was there. It might've been, I think, I don't think Walker was filming with them. I'm totally spacing on who else. I think Shlopey was there, um, spacing on the rest, but we were, in, we were in the Midwest in Minnesota and it was freezing cold. And I think I just wore like three hoodies. I never wore a jacket, but it was like negative 20. Um, but we, we did, we hit like a lot of really crazy rails and, uh, I think it seemed like, well, it seems like some of the movies seemed like they had an effect on you, thankfully. So thank you yeah. for watching them. Um, but that really felt like, uh, where I really started to 
started to get my start filming. Dude, I mean, the, the those are, movies are just so good because it's like everyone's in like skittle colored outfits, you know, like quadruple, you know, like four to seven times XL, you know, and the and the hits aren't super huge. It'll be like an urban rail with like a two on two out. But it was just the vibes were the vibes for those movies like really encapsulate that time. So I feel like uh, I mean, my DVD, like I tried to rewatch it the other day, not even the other day. This was like during uh, this was during lockdowns. That's when I really went on a binge. And it's just like, dude, trying to find a DVD player, like I was putting into my PlayStation, just to try to get that to work, and the whole menus were messed up. So, yeah, I mean that that movie definitely uh, some good vibes to that. But I mean that's that's cool that you've gotten to see like the different styles of every company and like what you liked, what you didn't. Um, before we move past it, before we move past college, and this is something I learned while I was listening to your old interviews last night. What was up with Clown School? And and that whole group of people, because I realized I had seen an edit from it. The the edit that I had seen from Clown School was the fuck edit. Yes. But that was it. So what else? What else was up with that crew? Because it seems like it was a pretty legit group of guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that people still know or talk about Clown School, and and I think for me the fuck edit was our like. Or I guess they, the other guys went on and did a lot of other cool videos, but that was like the pinnacle for myself personally, filming with those guys. That was just my crew of college friends um, and a lot of names that uh, ended up being really successful. Like, you know, we were talking a little bit, guys like John Ware and John Kutcher uh, and, and Ryan Weibel. Um, and, oh man, there's just like so many other names. So I, I don't even want to start rattling them all off. Um, but, but like people who are very successful skiers and are still in the ski world now. Um, but it was ultimately just like, you know, four by nine was, was the crew of all the guys that were a year older than us. And, you know, our generation all started going to the university of Utah the next year. Uh, and we were all living in the dorms together. And so we kind of filmed our own film company and it was way less, I guess not as badass as four by nine. And we were always hanging with the four by nine guys. Um, but we just were like, Hey, we have our own crew, the internet posting videos on the internet. This is going to really make us sound old was very novel at the time. Like it was very ski movie based at the time. So like YouTube was really just starting to become a viable option um, around then. And so we were producing videos around then. And so because it was so new, uh, our videos got a lot of traction in that whole season was like, uh, you know, and Evan Heath and Kevin Steen were, were really talented filmers, but I was just talking with John Ware recently. Uh, and he was like, that was the year, man. Uh, and it seemed like a lot of people watched those videos, but, but ultimately, which is awesome. Ultimately it was just a crew of college friends who skied and, uh, were very, very stoked on making videos. Yeah. What was the, the dynamic like between you and 4 by 9 Was there some uh, friendly competition or were they generally, uh, was it more like you guys were competing with them and they were like, yeah, whatever? No, no, totally like friendly competition. Like we were, we were, I mean, we ultimately were all skiing together on like anytime we were filming and we were all go home and we'd all be drinking and partying together at, at night as well. And, and, and honestly, we were all of, all of the clown school guys were a lot of times in the four by nine movies uh, and, and vice versa. I mean, good company is, is pretty much 
like evolved out of what four by nine was. And, you know, I was filming with those, I went filming with good company last year. It still feels like I'm just filming, filming with four by nine, honestly. Yeah. And, uh, so do you have any, uh, memories from the, uh, the four by frat days? Any, uh, <laughs> any party stories you could pass on to us? I probably should have memories, but most of them have, uh, have, have been erased away. Um, no, I, I mean, just, it just you know college shenanigans of being a young young college student um you know we, we definitely there was lots of partying and and drinking and stuff but uh but honestly we were all so passionate about skiing it was like ski hard play hard um you know i, I was thinking when we were talking about rage films like one night I hit an urban rail till like five in the morning because it was during the like nighttime era where you go at night to not get busted and so we hit a rail till like 5 a.m. And I had like an 8 a.m. class. And I remember just like getting into my dorm room and like dropping my ski stuff. I was like soaking wet and freezing cold and just like sitting under the shower for like 45 minutes exhausted before going to get breakfast and heading off to class and just being like, this is not sustainable. <laughs> but uh, I think we got wise eventually because four by nine started to have uh, they loved doing play on words with four by nine. And so they had four to nine with four by nine, which was just a regular house party, but it would start at 4 p.m. and end at 9 p.m. so that we could wake up early still and go skiing the next day. So we'd like 9 p.m. was like last call, but like we had been drinking since like mid-afternoon. So uh, we found ways to, to you know, play hard and, and work hard. I think that Steve Stepp told me that... Uh that was the goal it was the goal was to end by nine but by the time nine o'clock came around you guys were already wasted so it was like oh yeah. whatever let's just keep partying <laughs> yeah who knows <laughs> sounds about right cool so so traveling circus when does that come into the picture for you because obviously that's what that's what the most most of the viewer questions were about and like that's what people are like just so, still so so stoked on so like what was the how did you get into it? You know, because you obviously knew the guys already. So, and you were, uh, excuse me, riding for line already. So was it just like a natural fit? You're like, Hey, yeah, let's, let's go film this, go film that. Like, what was, what was joining the crew? Like, yeah, I mean, exactly that all of these different, all of these different crews are, you know, skiing and, and filming and stuff. And where everyone, you know, if you're as passionate about skiing as we all were in our, um, there aren't even really distinctions it's just you keep you just ski at every opportunity you have so um you know starting to like be beginning to film with traveling circus was was no change for me it was like during you know i think any i think it was during christmas break maybe the first time i filmed with them but i don't even remember really i had already been you know we filmed with meatheads all the time still so there was no distinction you didn't even know where the footage was going to sometimes it was just like yeah i'm gonna go film with will and andy some more uh and they were like oh we're starting this this thing traveling circus and i was just like cool i'm still just gonna ski with you like you know is i think maybe that's why it felt as genuine as it actually was too because for us it was nothing different it was still just skiing with your friends but uh it was in fact the start of of obviously this this video series that ironically enough as well is uh you know we would work so hard on these urban segments and and bust like just bust ourselves up trying to put them together 
what kids remember, what kids know us from is like our, our goofy hijinks and stuff from traveling circus. So it really put into perspective, like, uh, you know, how important it is to just have a good time and, and try to portray skiing as something fun and, and not too serious. Um, but, but yeah, it was, there was no, like Will and Andy just started it because they didn't want to get jobs. Uh, and they were so successful at it, at doing what they're already doing and having fun that, uh, it grew into what it is. And, and once, once they realized they started getting traction, uh, it made it all the more alluring to want to keep filming with them. You know, when the trip started getting longer and crazier and further away and better funded. And so what went from just of course, yeah, we're just going to keep skiing with our friends. It turned to like, ooh, yeah, let's, I hope I get invited on this trip. Yeah. Wow. And do, I don't know if you have any insight into this, but what were the meathead guys thinking when Will and Andy are basically starting up their own like version of meatheads, you know, because it's an East Coast crew going around skiing where those meathead guys kind of like shivering in their boots. They're like, shit, these guys are kind of uh, doing the exact same thing that uh, we're trying to do right now. They were so pissed. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, same deal. It was just, you know, we're skiing all day, every day. There's only so much filming you could do. You could do. Uh, there was never any, and if for any, even if there was like, even if it was just to have some kind of animosity, those guys, the meatheads, like Jeff and Rooster, are like the coolest guys ever. Like they would never be, they would never be bitter, or have ill will anyway. Um, but, but there, there definitely was no need either. Um, it was just, you know, it was just another outlet to be producing content and, um, you know, they were doing, they were filming so much stuff on their own anyway. I feel like a lot of times traveling circus was filming at the time, uh, meatheads were probably off at the chick chocks filming like epic powder. Um, and, and again, meatheads were, you know, their peak was at an era still where like, where like you know, annual big releases was still very, there was, there was, it would be funny to consider that a video series on YouTube could be competitive with a ski movie, uh, which today it almost, you know, if you didn't grow up in that era, it almost seems ironic or it almost seems like laughable that, uh, that they wouldn't be able to compete because it's very much the opposite now. Like no one would ever buy a DVD now. And even even full movie releases on YouTube that are that long form format uh, still struggle compared to shorter videos. Uh, but at the time, uh, no one would ever be intimidated by you know a couple guys making short YouTube videos. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, they're probably like, all right, you kids can go do whatever you want. This is a joke, exactly. anyways. Yeah. Wow, that's funny. So I mean, it, traveling circus has covered so many years. What is it like season fourteen now? If you had to pick out just a couple memories that uh, that really stand out to you, I mean, like going abroad or just any particular moments, like what really stands out to you from from your years with TC? Yeah, there's so many. Um, you know, I, I always think of that saying, like, do, uh, what's it's like from some movie quote, like, I wish you could know that you were in the good times when they're actually happening. I think it might be The Office or something. Yeah. Uh, but it, TC was exactly that. I did not realize that it was happening. Uh, but some of the best memories definitely uh, in season four, uh, which way to the Autobahn, we just happened to go to Europe during the craziest snowstorm of like the century. And we're skiing like three feet of powder, like fresh snow every day, just completely fill in every day. 
Um, and we we're supposed to be like hitting rails and stuff, but it was just too deep. We just had to ski powder, but just traveling around Europe, being young and dumb in, in a van in like a little motor home, uh, just skiing absolutely deep powder and not knowing what we were doing was, was a huge highlight. Um, and then, but honestly, a lot of my like favorite episodes looking back to are ones that aren't nearly as like epic and romantic, um, cold Turkey from, I don't even remember what season, but it was like five years ago was just us skiing in the fall around Thanksgiving, uh, at home in Utah. Uh, but I think preseason vibes is so true to the traveling circus mark. Um, and that I like. I really like look back on that time. I think and having Jake come on board and uh, I think that really just embodied what skiing with your friends and not having good snow conditions and still having like a super good time is all about. So looking back on that episode too uh, and, and so many others as well, like going to China with those guys and stuff was, was wild. But a lot of the just at home backyard style episodes also were just uh, so so fun and memorable i guess one more uh sorry i'm maybe rambling uh we went back to vermont for two episodes uh two or three years ago i think uh, hard telling not knowing and uh east coast real hardcore or whatever part three or whatever we stayed at my mom's house in vermont and and things had started to slow down at that point for me so it felt very like full circle to like go back home and just ski around with like some of my OG friends and, and just enjoy Vermont where I grew up, fell in love with skiing. Uh, so yeah, I guess a bunch of different episodes for a bunch of different reasons. Yeah. Have you ever actually tallied it up and counted how many countries, uh, how many different countries you've been to through skiing, not even just through TC? Cause it's been, you know, like, especially if you like start looking at like level one who is always going abroad, like, have you ever really sat down and tallied it up? Uh, I I haven't tallied up the countries. We, a long time ago, I think there was like some app came out where you could like check all of the ski resorts you've skied to or skied at or something. And so we like, I think I remember Will and I maybe went through and Will had skied more than like 50 resorts, which doesn't sound too crazy. And it's, that number is way bigger for him now. But it's actually pretty impressive. As far as countries, though, I can't think of off the top of my head, but it's definitely, I mean, it's got to be like, it's more for Will and Andy, but it's got to be like, maybe like 15 at least, or, or uh, I, I don't know, most of them just all these tiny little countries in Europe. But uh, I mean, yeah, we've, we skied on like, we skied on, I think, five continents. And I've surfed on six. We, we wanted to go to Antarctica. It was always a big trip. And we, we were super close. I don't know if I'm allowed to. They have all of these like trips that are permanently in the works until they happen. Uh, and they're just waiting for the stars to align. So I don't want to. We almost had a big one happen this fall that I definitely can't give away. Because um, when they do finally go, it'll be really epic. Um, but you're just waiting for the conditions to be right. Uh, you know, obviously, a lot of times they're really exotic. But I will give away at this point because it probably it would be unlikely to happen. There, we almost went to Antarctica for traveling circus, <laughs> and it was going to be like Will got us like a huge discount, um, and it was only going to cost like ten grand, I think, each. Um, <laughs> we were going to get to go like take a cruise ship and like ski on like icebergs and stuff. 
Um, but that's just still so much money and the whole crew couldn't swing it. Um, but, but I think, you know, putting it in perspective, that's like super cheap to go to Antarctica. Um, but, uh, so sorry. Anyway, yeah, I'm getting off on a tangent here. I, I don't know the number of countries, but, uh, I'm, they definitely want to ski on all seven continents. That's for sure. Yeah. Wow. That would be, <laughs> that would be crazy. Would you come out, would you come out of, uh, of amateur status if they said hey we got a, we got one more spot going to antarctica oh man i mean if it was in like the next six months i wouldn't want to you know compromise my job but if i was if i was like settled away comfortably enough and had the in and outs figured out where i could take off like a month and that was going to be okay with my work i would totally do it <laughs> oh i would be all and at, at the time i was like 10 grand i was like yeah, that's a ton of money. And like, I'm, I'm all in, I was, I was so prepared to go uh, yeah. a couple of years ago, but yeah. Oh man, that's funny. So like on a different note, but still within the traveling circus world, what'd you think when uh, Ian Compton retired at such a young age? I mean, that was like, looking at that now, that was like almost 10 years ago from like this point, you know? So you have a, an additional 10 years skiing beyond when he, he retired. So he must've been like in his early twenties. So what do you guys think when, uh, when like this young 20 year old is like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to just call it quits. It, I mean, it was a bummer because he was obviously a very integral part of the crew and just a good friend of ours in Vermonter and, and was being, he was really coming into a lot of success at the time. He had started filming with level one. Uh, this was quite a few, this was at least a few years before I had ever filmed with them. So uh, it was definitely, he was definitely really successful, but I think, he had an injury and I think, I can't remember who it was, I think it was his back, but it might've been his head. Um, but it was enough that it was like a pretty big deal. And in Compton, you know, he, he uh, you know, he's particular about what he wants out of life and what he's into. And he's passionate about the things he's really into. But I think, I think Utah and like Salt Lake life wasn't for him. He liked uh, you know, he ended up, I think he's back down out of there now, but he ended up moving up to the cabin and having this really nice, quiet, uh, traditional Vermont life that suited him much better. So I think, I think there was like a number of factors going on for him, but, uh, you know, the, the hustle and bustle of Park City and in like the Salt Lake vibe, which is like such a scene, was just like definitely not for him. And, but I think ultimately it was that injury that, uh, the injury that was like the catalyst to to have him switch it up and I think it was the best for him but it was a huge bummer because he's obviously like a really good friend and a huge part of the crew but uh, you know you never and I would imagine the same is true of me and my friends right now uh, I'm sure Will, Jake uh, and Andy and, and like Ross and those guys are not like hyped that I'm you know they're hyped for me to get a job but they also probably, you know, you want to ski with your friends more. So it, it was that same kind of vibe where uh, it was a bummer to see him go. And, and we still ski with him quite a bit, but, um, but yeah, who knows? He, uh, who knows what might've become, uh, had he not been injured, he was, he might've had many, many more epic urban segments to come, but such is life. Yeah. Yeah. It's just funny. Cause it's, uh, you know, even after all these years, it's like 2C is going to still, is going to still carry on despite, anyone leaving you know it really seems like it, it's it's hinging on andy and will staying part of it which is kind of trapping it seems like it's trapping them in until 
their old men on, you know, on walkers until they can leave. Oh, no, they are very happy and they will not let it. Uh, anyone, anyone listening that is a TC fan, just know that uh, those guys are more dedicated than any of us. And they they are going to they won't let it die until they absolutely have to. If, if they have funding, uh, they're going to do it forever. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm the weak one throwing in the towel, but. Those guys bleed TC, and uh, and so I don't think I'm not afraid of the show ending anytime soon. Yeah, that's and that's really good to hear because I, there was actually there was a period of time, I forget what season it was, um, but I've been watching since the beginning, and there was like one season where it was kind of up in the air. They're like, I think people were talking like, oh, this might be the last season of Traveling Circus, and it seems like after that, after they pushed through that season. From then on out, it was never a discussion again whether or not it was going to end. But it seemed like maybe it was like when Shane was leaving. I don't even know. But there was one season it really seemed like people were getting ready to wrap it up. I don't know if you have any insight into that, but I think I kind of remember that in the back of my mind. Yeah, I can't think of a specific instance. And to be honest, I was kept away from some of the, you know, I was never, Traveling Circus isn't my child. I just got to be along for the ride for a lot of it. So I think there's probably a lot of inner workings between uh, you know, the, the founders of it uh, that I don't know about. But I think there were times where funding was tight and I think times where things were a little tricky. And I still hear about times where it can be a little difficult here and there. Um, but I think at this point, it's so well established that it's clearly a huge, it's, it's Lion's most successful marketing thing. It's just such a huge monster that uh, I think maybe at times it was tricky but I know the people working at line now fully recognize how successful traveling circus is. So um, I think, I think it's very safe. I think there was a time where Will and Andy, um, I think, I don't know if line technically owns the brand traveling circus or not. And so I think that might've been what was happening. Um, there was discussion of needing more funding. And so whether line was willing to release the brand so other sponsors could come on board and I think that's a tough line to walk because I think Line knew how successful it was and didn't want to give it up, but also maybe didn't have the extra funding that those guys wanted to grow it a little more. Um, and it's obviously like a nuanced situation because Line has thrown so much money at Traveling Circus, so it's no fault of their own. But I think walking that line between uh, the proper amount of funding uh, was was being figured out at the time. but. I think they're pretty well funded now. When they go on trips, they seem pretty comfortable and are happy to help help anyone who comes along out along the way, which which has been super nice the last few years. Um, but but yeah, I guess I don't know for I don't know the details. Yeah, well, it's good to hear that they're in uh, they're they're in good shape now. So you kind of mentioned it, um, and this is something I feel like comes up every episode, mainly because like everyone's moving out there. But like being from Vermont, what was your first impression of Salt Lake? When you got out there because everyone says it's just like once you move out there it's like a different beast yeah it, it's like a mecca uh and vermont is kind of like like i said vermont kind of feels like the center of east coast skiing but it's just such a different monster like utah the mountains are just so much bigger there's so many more resorts the parks are like so much uh, you know more legit with so many more features it's just um you know it's like 
growing up in the growing up in the small pond your whole life and being super excited on something and then finally getting thrown into the ocean and seeing how big the world really is um is just it was a great environment to like grow and and cultivate our like love of skiing further um I don't know just yeah absolutely mind-blowing skiing seven days a week all day every day like powder uh powder park it didn't matter it was just like um yeah Utah is crazy I think it seems like things are changing now uh everything's getting so crowded because everyone you know everyone is equally passionate about skiing now which is pretty cool but uh I think the the lifestyle and in way of life that we had is probably probably couldn't be reproduced as easily now which is crazy yeah wow man so i'm just looking at my list of of things that i don't want to miss because you've done so many things uh one of the biggest ones that stands out to me and i don't even know where this falls on the timeline that uh we've roughly stuck to but your 2010 to 2011 season edit my hold up is like it's two parts and it might hold up as the best season edit of all time. It is just so freaking gnarly. So what was going on that season? You were just, you were just skiing at a different level. Like what, what had, what happened with that? Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, can you mad? Like I, you, you could never have a 20 minute season edit in this day and age. So it's yeah. funny. Thank you. I appreciate that. That was a, a unique time. I think, yeah, for me, that was just kind of a, that was, I mean, that's what kind of when I peaked, I guess, 10 years ago. Uh, I mean, there's been, you know, it's not a, it's bimodal or whatever. There's different peaks and humps in the, along the way, but that was really where I felt like I'd come into my own and just was so busy all year. Uh, literally just, I was literally filming or competing every single day. Uh, like I literally would come from a contest and go film urban and then, leave an urban trip and fly straight to like wherever the next contest was and compete and then go back and it was just uh i think i was just you know you see it in like more successful skiers and like other people as well like like someone like tom or like guys like alex hall now um where they just really you see like that the, maybe they were really good when they were younger but then things like really start to click and then they just start to like really really have a lot of success and you know I, like for me it wasn't winning contests but maybe it was like getting a lot of the best shots that i ever got filming but you see guys like that where they just all of a sudden go from being good to just winning every single contest i feel like that was that season for me where like maybe i had gotten some like pretty decent urban shots or like started to be a little competitive in contests and then that season was just I think a lot of companies realized they wanted to film with me and I was just really starting to figure out <laughs> urban skiing for myself, I guess. Um, and, and also I, I broke my kneecap the next year. So I was able to sit down on a couch for, for like a month and collect every single shot and, uh, and put a lot of time into editing it up. So combination of things, I guess, but thank you so much. Uh, I, I look back on that that uh season really fondly so to hear someone say that is is very uh is very nice thank you yeah well i mean the soundtrack also was just absolutely killer <laughs> it was just such a great collection so i mean from that edit i mean across the two parts what are some what are some of the shots that stand out to you i don't know if you could remember them in particular but because I, I definitely uh, have a couple that stand out to me 
Yeah, well, off the top of my head, like the whale's tails, and I think uh, I, I'm always, anytime I'm, anyone time people are talking to me about different exploits over the years, the whale's tails comes up a lot, so it, I guess I don't need to like deep dive into that, but I remember that was that season, and that was like one of the more memorable shots of my whole life, uh, and with the Meathead Films crew, or uh, obviously some of my, the people I'm most grateful towards for all they did for me, so. That was an awesome one, but uh, I think that might have been the year I did the like crazy poor boys, the first like elbowy rail. I've done a few now, but yeah, like the, with the ninety degree turn in the middle of it. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, yeah, this we called it like the saw rail because yeah, uh, but yeah, Spokane rail. And I was just talking with uh Pete Arneson the other day about it. Um, but him and. Uh, who know Wallace and a couple other guys too were all from around there and just uh they all knew Cody Carter who was the filmer for poor boys that I've been filming with and so cool then to just some random dude coming into town and like oh yeah we'll show you all of our urban rail spots and they just brought me from rail to rail and were like you can hit any of our spots that you want and at the time I was just like cool thanks but now I'm like wow that is super cool of all those guys to to show me around and then pete actually hit that rail first but that rail was it was really gnarly like even today i think it would be really intense to hit um so that was another yeah those two are standouts off the top of my head i i can't remember the edit well enough to recall other stuff but because there was a lot that year yeah that was a that was a really sick year and i think so the whale tail i mean obviously it was, it's been brought up in every every interview i listened to and uh <laughs> But I got to ask, because I, I talked to Dan Brown, and you submitted the viewer question for him, and uh, that shot, just the photo, what did you think when you when you went over to Dan and he's like, yo, look at this photo that I got of the whale tail? Because that thing was my iPhone background for years in like like middle school, high school, and I'm sure plenty of other kids. So what did you think when you actually saw that photo? Uh, well, it's funny that the photo became so such a big part of that shoot because uh you know as like a film skier um you know this is like the unspoken thing that no one will ever tell you uh but is definitely in the back of the athlete's head is like you're always really preoccupied with the video shot and kind of tend to not care about the photo quite as much even though the photo is like you know a lot of times like in this scenario the photo is like stands the test of time and is like is the really important part but just being a film skier you care so much about you know you're worried about your own little lane and so that you're in so you're care you're like looking at the video shot and want to make sure you got the grab good and that everything on your part was good the photographer wants to make sure that everything was in focus and good the videographer wants to make sure that they got so i don't even think i was super preoccupied with the photo i think i was like just wanted to make I, I like barely got I barely landed that before the sunset so I just wanted to make sure that it was actually the shot um I think and I still think this since I was carving I carved all of my forward dubs at the time I wanted to be a little more straight and so like I still am over the tail but like I was like I remember thinking maybe like oh I, I wish I I shouldn't have carved so much like I'm a little off to the left more than I wanted to be which is you know, such a trivial and like, uh, you know, I should have been like, that's the most epic photo ever, thanks, Dan. But instead I was just, I think, caught up in the moment and just like, oh yeah, that's that's sick. I think we cracked a bunch of beers. 
my mom actually was like coming home from work and had stopped and watched and it was just like a good moment with friends I, I think uh I don't think I took it I didn't just take it very seriously at the time we had no idea that you know Dan was gonna submit it to like he like raised a bunch of money for like the hurricane fund. And then I think just like this last year for Shane McFall's kid, I think he did another fundraiser with it. It's ended up raising like a bunch of money. Dan's such a good dude for doing that. And then, uh, you know, it ended up being like a cover of a European ski magazine, which was really cool. Um, so, you know, big, big ups to Dan for, for doing that uh, and the meatheads for setting that up. Cause I think, Honestly, the red tape around letting us jump that thing was insane. And so that was meatheads all the way lining that up. Um, I think those are like, those sculptures are worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the owners were very particular that we do not touch them at all because they're pretty delicate. Um, they're like black African granite, I think they said. Uh, it's like super expensive. They have had to like ship them. They got like shipped across the world or something crazy. Uh, Ross and Bergia hit his head going too slow into it on it and like knocked himself out. It was just like such a, such a ridiculous day all around. Um, so the fact that it even worked out was awesome. Yeah. That is such an awesome clip, dude. That, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, it's just a timeless clip. You know, the photo always gets resurfaced. I'll, I'll probably use it as the promo for this. It's just, it's just the photo. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, uh, I never get enough of it. So, uh. Uh, happy to hear that. Yeah. Do you know if there's footage of the of Ross knocking himself out on it? Oh, there definitely is. I think there's little snippets in Meathead's movie that year, which is Prime Cut, but I think they were always really good about having a bonus movie in the in the bonus section of the DVD. But I think if you go into the bonus section of the DVD, there's like an extended version of like Rooster standing over Ross, like trying to see like, can you, can you, how many fingers am I holding up and stuff? I remember he was like, really wanted to keep hitting it. And the story I always tell people um, is like <laughs> trying to test to see if you had a concussion or not. And he was like trying to stand up and we were like, chill out Ross and sit for a second. We're gonna ask you some questions. And he had been eating Oreos earlier in the day and had like chocolate Oreo crumbs on his lips still. And I was like, Ross, you were just eating cookies. Now, what kind of cookie were you eating earlier today? And he was like, uh, 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 Tuesday. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're not hitting this anymore. He was like, oh, wait, is I get oh, oh, cookies? Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I thought you asked the day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> just wanted it so bad. That is so funny, man. <laughs> It's in there somewhere, though. I don't know about. I don't think that part, but there's the clip of him actually hitting his head is in there. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go track that down. <laughs> That's funny. So, so you mentioned that after that after that 2010 to 2011 season, you got injured like the season right afterwards. So, do you feel like that kind of stopped the momentum of your career, or like what the, what? Looking back now, since you've had some time, it's. It, again, like probably 10 years now, like what, what did that injury really, really mean at the time for you? It did. It totally cut me down in my prime. Um, you know, it's always hard to speculate what effect it actually had, but it did seem like a pretty big deal. Um, I had been, you know, all the, all this filming had been really successful for me, but I was slowly starting to have a little more success competing. Um, you know, I finally started qualifying for Dutor every year, which 
Uh, I had failed to do many years previous in a lot of these other slope style contests. I was starting to, there was a lot of opens around still, and I was starting to, you know, make finals and sometimes podium at, at them. And so I think I qualified for Dutour slope style that year, which was like a huge deal for me. Um, and, uh, you know, the, like the filming came so naturally, but I really wanted to be successful competing as well. And that year, uh, you know, with how the contests had gone leading up to that, you know, Dutour, the first Dutour, it used to be an actual tour of contests and, uh, the first one was so early in the year that I already competed. I think I did all right or something enough to get in. So I was like so focused on that. And, uh, you know, having that injury just cut me down for the rest of that season. And then um, it was at a time where you had to qualify with points. The AFP was like trying to be like surfing at the time. Um, which I can totally respect, but they were still kind of figuring it out. And so, you know, having a blank rest of the contest season totally wiped me out as far as being able to qualify for contests the following season. Um, so, you know, it probably did have a pretty solid effect on uh, me chasing contests, especially not being successful at it. Uh, you know, you have to if you're on the cusp of doing well all the time, you can't you can't take a whole season off from it. On the filming side of things, it probably didn't matter at all. I missed out on the rest of that season, but um, you know, poor boys and level one and rage and meatheads weren't going to check how many points I had the rest of the year before they decided to call me up for an urban trip the following year. So it maybe just solidified. It maybe helped keep me in my lane more than I wanted to at the time. I really. It was at a time where you didn't have to choose between filming and competing as much. And I really wanted to be someone who didn't choose. Um, and up to that point, like I said, I had been going from contest to film shoot back to contest. Uh, after that, I really started to focus more on filming. And, and maybe I wouldn't have been as successful in filming had that not happened if I had uh, kept trying to fail at competing. But uh, it, that's that felt like one of the biggest changes that, that came out of that for me. Um, it, it all worked out and, you know, you're never going to get everything you want. So I don't I don't look back on it. Uh, I don't I don't wish and wonder. Um, but at the time, that seemed like a big deal to me. Yeah. And so I actually I actually do have a viewer question that's kind of asking about the industry at large. And I'm going to start tying these in so we don't have a have another hour of uh, viewer questions at the end. So this this guy, uh, Jasper underscore in. So he's wondering, you know, if you're if you're somebody that's like a, a full career with a with a a company, you know, you have a really good relationship with them. If you get like a, a life altering injury, especially like working for them, would they ever you know take care of you? beyond like your useful life as a skier you know say you get like horribly injured and then you can't walk you know potentially for for the rest of your life would would they ever is there any precedent for them contributing money like you know like hey you know you were good to us for all these years here's some money you know for what happened um i mean i don't want to say that it never happens um but when you're talking about like lifelong permanent injuries um i think it's very, very rare um, and not 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 maliciously from these companies, but honestly, it's a tight margin to justify giving athletes money in hopes that they're going to create sales. You know, if a company gives you $10,000 or something, 
That means that they think that you're going to generate more than $10,000 worth of sales for their company, which for a lot of small companies is just ridiculous. But for bigger companies, like I think Red Bull, uh, and I don't know this because I never had an energy drink sponsor, but I, Red Bull seems like they treat theirs very well. And Red Bull also has incredibly deep pockets. So if there were a company to do something like that, it might be a company like a, a massive non-endemic sponsor like Red Bull. But even then, I kind of doubt it. Maybe if it got a lot of like attention in the media and this person was like a Sean White or something or a Tony Hawk, I could see that. But uh, for the most part, no, you're kind of just you're kind of just shit out of luck. It's, it's very, it's pretty cutthroat, man. Uh, that being said, when I had my knee injury, which was not a life, wasn't a career ending injury, but was very much removed a whole season. My sponsors were gracious enough to still pay out my full contracts for the year. Uh, you know, I only skied for like a month and, uh, I think I was riding for I was obviously riding for line, but I think I was riding for saga at the time as well. And there was no questions asked. Uh, I still received all my paychecks for the entire year, which uh, even that is is pretty cool of a company to do when you're working on annual contracts. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I like that, that the, especially that like all these companies, you know, that, that have been so great to you your whole career that they looked out for you that time. So shout out to Jasper for that question. So we got another question and it does kind of uh, kind of related. Uh, so this is from Jack Martin. So I'll kind of interject myself into this. So I remember in the, in the injury video, you're worrying about if you'll ever be able to walk or run again because you were big on marathons at the time. So Jack Martin's question is, he says, uh, tell us about your marathon experience. Didn't you go skiing right, right after uh, running a marathon? Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for remembering that. That was a really fun day. Uh, yeah, I've been into running kind of my entire adult life uh, just my mom's really into running and uh, I think it's just a good form of exercise, but uh, I know most people do not enjoy running. Um, but that was, I had gone for like a 27 mile run a year or two before uh, just on my own for fun uh, and realized that distance running was exciting for me. Uh, and so wanted to do like an official marathon. And so had been training a little bit, a uh, decent bit that fall leading up to that. And then uh, the, the mountains in Utah had just got a bunch of snow and the traveling circus guys, of course, we're going to go, go, uh, you know, do some filming in the mountains that day. And, uh, Shane McFalls was like, we got to film this and you got to come skiing after. And I was of course like, yeah, that'll be awesome. Like run a marathon and then go ski. Like that sounds, that sounds super cool. Um, but so yeah, my marathon experience was just probably like a lot of other people's wake up super early try to force yourself to poop in a, in a porta potty before the run. And then uh, really pretty backdrop. It was on uh, Antelope Island in Utah, which is this island on the Great Salt Lake. And it's, it was like pitch black the first like 40 minutes of the run. Um, and then you're just running through farmland and I didn't know they were gonna show up or maybe I did, but it was a big surprise to see them on the course with the big traveling circus fan. Um, and then, Got to the end of the race and uh, Jeremiah Paquette, another good friend of mine. Uh, thankfully, I didn't have the foresight to think that I would want clothes to change into. And he gave me all these old clothes uh, and then they whisked me off to McDonald's. And we <laughs> probably this is where my experience differs from most people's. Instead of going home, I could like barely sit down to like 
poop or pee or whatever i took a quick shower and then we went to mcdonald's and my stomach was feeling terrible and then we just went skiing and built a backflip jump to play on for the rest of the day and uh it was very exhausting but uh that was a really fun day that i'll never forget yeah that's awesome dude so you injure yourself this is kind of where i have the gap in my notes so it just it just goes straight from injury to real ski i don't know how how close in the timeline that is but uh yeah, I mean, if if you just want to jump straight into the real ski, unless there was something in between that you feel like uh, you'd really like to get thrown out there. No, that that's kind of where my career was going through some growing pains. And, uh, you know, that's where kind of when, like I said, competing was slowing down for me. Uh, the Olympics were about to happen and I wasn't going to be able to do that. Uh, I just was definitely not competitive enough. So I, I think that's maybe even where I started getting thoughts of going back to school because I didn't really have something. I, I always like to be working towards something in skiing. And so I didn't really know what I was working towards anymore. Uh, so when real ski came around and I didn't get an invite the first year, I finally felt like I had something to motivate me again. Uh, and that's why there is kind of that gap between there because I really was kind of lost and not sure. And then the year before real ski, not getting invited i made uh this i have a 2016 urban edit that you can probably youtube or something somewhere um but it was me trying really really hard to get into real ski and so i worked really hard the year before uh and, and then actually that was the year that we did the whole bin diesel shoot too but uh, the first half of that year been filming urban uh, and then sent that off to everyone that I knew that was a part of the whole real ski event, just spam, mass email spam to everyone that edit. Uh, and then thankfully, so grateful I got that invite the next year. And, and that kind of lit a, that kind of rejuvenated my career a little bit, which uh, for me felt like it was starting to die at the time. Yeah. I mean, it, it came back strong because you got invited two years in a row and then, uh, like I said at the beginning, you had the, the backflip onto the pillar. It's like one of the most, uh, just such a gnarly, gnarly shot. Probably one of the gnarliest shots that's been in real ski. So, I mean, from those real ski years, what really stands out to you? I'm sure that's one of them. Yeah, I, I approached those years very differently. Uh, obviously, the first one I went way more hard into. I, I recognized that this was like my big shot in that and that things were starting to slow down for me. Uh, you know, if it had been, if I had been like 20 or something during my first invite, things might've been different, but I was like, I knew I was getting older. I actually had just started going back to school at that time. Uh, I dropped out of my, I had huge, this huge deal of going back to school in the, in the summer and then was in fall semester and was still going to ski that winter. Um, but getting invited to real ski, you need to be on it like immediately. And so, it was like Thanksgiving or something and Utah got like three inches of snow in the valley, like so little. And I had just moved to Portland, was like getting ready for finals, dropped out of school, took, I have withdrawals on my permanent record now, I, not fails thankfully, but I'd spent two months doing these courses and finals were like a week or two away, just immediately dropped out. And just so I could drive to Utah for three inches of snow, like had barely skied, hadn't done a backflip yet that year and found that pillar on Google Earth. And that thing was made of more like pallets and dirt than snow. And uh, and like, yeah, like my first backflip of the year was onto that pillar. Uh, and 
And that is funny because, yeah, that was like I had like barely skied at that point, had been like in school two days before. And that ended up being like one of the highlights of our video for sure. And cut myself open, got stitches that day. I was like, you know, my elbow is like duct taped under my hoodie there. It was just like such a shit show and going so hard. And that kind of set that kind of set the pace for the rest of that whole that that whole six weeks. Um, and I'm and I'm like super stoked on what me and Jake put together. But the next year, you know, I think we were a little we were a little demotivated by I think anyone that works that hard wants to win and will be won't be happy with anything less. So I think, uh, you know, we're in retrospect, like super happy with how everything went. But the next year we were like, this isn't worth like, I'm not just trying to I'm not like I might not even get any kind of medal. I don't want to work that hard again uh, for for potentially like uh you know whatever whatever we're gonna get out of it so i was not gonna do it and jake was like dude just take the money and just film an urban edit let's do something fun and so you could probably tell the next year wasn't us trying to put our best edit of all time together um we thought it'd be really fun we came up with a bunch of ideas and ended up doing the lines idea where we were going to make every clip a line uh some of our other ideas were we we're going to have every single shot have to be first try. So we show up to an urban spot, set it up, and I have to do tricks. And if I don't get it first try, then then we move on. Um, another idea was to have someone else skiing with me in every single shot. So like every single urban shot is doubles. We were thinking maybe do every shot, no rails at all, a full urban edit, which doesn't sound as crazy now, but five years ago, it would have been a little more crazy to have not a single urban rail in an urban edit. Um, but for a bunch of different reasons, a lot of those ideas were a little too wacky. Uh, but, uh, you know, having lines that it was a fun thing to do. And again, we didn't take it super seriously, but I think we still put a kind of a fun, cool video together nonetheless. Yeah, totally. It's definitely a, a, one of the more unique ones that's ever come out. Um, what do you, what's it like? So you were on the athlete side of it. What's it like being on the judging side now? Cause I think I was talking to, uh, Jeff Schmuck and he said that, uh, you're just such a sweet guy that you're having a hard time making like a firm decision about who gets what. And so what was it like, you know, understanding, you know, the athletes, they pour their heart and soul into it. And then you're just on the other side, sitting in a room, like, Nope, this guy's is better. Like what, what, what is that like for you? Well, so yeah, I think having that athlete perspective really, I think really made me take it so seriously and made me stress about it more than a lot of the other guys. Um, you know, some of the other guys would be like drinking beers and stuff, which is perfectly reasonable. And like, you should be like relaxing, enjoying yourself. But for me, I was like, just all I could think about was how much, how hard I worked that first year and how important it was for me. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if two guys are maybe like neck and neck between getting like, you know, like third and fourth place, like being on the podium or not for me at the time, that felt like such a huge deal. And I wanted to make sure that we got it absolutely perfect. So I was like, I was blown away that some of the other guys weren't taking it as seriously as I was. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all just so subjective. And, um, but, but I think, yeah, having that athlete perspective made it super stressful for me. And I, I just wanted to do, I, I cared and respected these new athletes and didn't want to screw screw them over and ultimately your your vote is only one in a big group of of five or six and it's so subjective that 
it gets muddled. Um, but I wanted to be sure that I did my part and the people that I felt should do well, uh, that I made my voice heard. So it was very stressful for me. Um, and, and I'm, I'm like perfectly fine with the fact that I'm, someone might say I took it too seriously, but, uh, you know, that's like, that's like our Olympics. That's, a, that's like something I'll ever forget for the rest of my life. So I think it's something that should be taken very seriously. Yeah. And, uh, I think that that's the end of my list before I get to the, uh, viewer questions. Is there any, is there any, uh, recent happenings that you want to want to touch on before we start picking, picking these off? Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think, not, not really just, uh, I mean, you covered, we covered most of the, the yeah. big life events for me and in, in skiing. It's been fun to, fun to look back on all of them. Um, yeah, I think that seems good to me. If there's anything in particular though, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's plenty, there's a lot of these viewer questions, so okay, let's see cool. the ones that we've already answered. So, so the ones that have already been answered, shout out to Holden, Rolf and Sebastian asking about the favorite TC memories. Yeah. Sorry, we can't answer those directly for you, but we got those a little earlier. So there's another TC one from uh, Floster, um, and he asks, what is your favorite part about being with TC? So not favorite moment, just like what about – what is your favorite part about, about being with those guys and being part of that crew? I think my favorite part about it is, um, you know, skiing at a higher level. You start having to do things that scare you or maybe you don't want to do or – uh, you know, you just enter to push it, to push yourself to your limits. There's sometimes lines you cross that if you were alone in a, in a vacuum that you might not otherwise do skiing with those guys, you do. It's just having fun. It's literally just whatever you want to do all the time. And if there's something that you are excited about, that is gnarly, everyone's going to get behind you. Everyone wants you to succeed. Everyone's going to bust their asses building that jump for you. Um, and if you ultimately don't want to do it, they're going to be perfectly fine with it. If you want to do something that's really dumb, that would never make it as a shot in a movie that in like other situations, someone would be like, no, we're not going to film that waste our time. Like they will always be down to film it. Um, so I think, I think, uh, the best part of skiing with them is it's the most true to what any of your viewers, uh, skiing experience with their friends is like, uh, we're doing the exact same thing, which, uh, can be rare, you know, at the higher level when you're filming for some kind of production or something. So that's my favorite part. It, it's just skiing with your friends. That's so awesome. So we had another uh, kind of TC realm question. So this one is from Trey Laddie. And uh, so this is actually something we didn't touch on. He asked if you were going to make another Taft appearance and uh, I'll throw something on the end of that. What what has been your favorite experience within the Telefriend tour? Um, if you and if you ever plan to come back to it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's so gracious of all these resorts to have us. Um, you know, if you anyone that doesn't know what Telefriend tour is, it's Andy Perry's uh, activation tour, basically just going out trying to ski with kids all across the country to smaller resorts for the kids that don't get to go to Breckenridge and Vail and stuff on their vacations, uh, still ski with, get to meet and ski with professional skiers and, and, you know, just generate hype around the sport. Um, I really like going to Pine Knob every year because uh, uh, Matt Dunn, the, the, 
the park builder there is just a really stoked, awesome dude, uh, builds great parks and just shares that same passion that you see in people that, uh, that love snow sports and love keeping in touch with him. Um, but I mean, I mean, it's so hard to pick a, a specific memory from, from tell a friend tour. Cause it's all just awesome. Any, anytime I've met a kid who's super stoked and saucer eyed and, uh, tells me they watch traveling circus that it's so validating. It's so awesome to like have someone be stoked on what you're doing. So, uh, you know, all of, all of those moments skiing with kids, watching some of these kids try tricks for the first time for the sole reason that, you know, we're there and they want to do that trick in front of us. All of those moments have been the best. Um, I don't know how many, I've gotten a few DMs about whether I'm going to be on Telefriend tour this year and probably won't be able to go to many this year. As I start to figure out my work schedule, maybe that'll change in the future a little bit. Um, but I will say that the rest of the crew and a lot of the younger guys, these up and comer guys like, uh, like Pete Kukoff, who's very talented. And if you haven't heard of him, you certainly will soon. Uh, those guys will all be there. So you should definitely go still. Nice. Cool. So I will get into two uh, kind of off off skiing questions. Actually, no. <laughs> well, one of them is on skiing and the other one's the other one's off skiing. The first one, I got to ask it because he, he submits it almost every time. Um, it's from Ankilla. I don't know if you're familiar with Ankilla. He wants no. you to answer the question, is skiing sexual? Uh, you know, I'm such a I'm such a, you know, being a, a data scientist now, I'm such a quantitative guy, and this is such a, a qualitative question. Uh, so I probably won't give a, won't give as fun of an exciting as an answer as some people probably will. Um, but in the purely literal sense, <laughs> that a numbers person would say, I would say no, that it is not. But in a more creative, artistic, fun sense, uh, I would say it's incredibly stimulating in a number of ways. Uh, some of which could be totally uh, construed as sexual in, in experience and in qualitative nature. So, yeah, sure. There, there you go, Ankel. You, you got your question. Great question. So the next one is from uh, Dan Brown, our friend Dan Brown. And he said, what can, what can LJ tell, tell me about the poet John Keats? Oh, yeah. So I was just talking about how I'm quantitative. I was an English major as an undergrad, which is very qualitative again. Um, but I had just written a paper on uh, on one of his poems during Rails to Riches one year and was talking to Dan about it. Uh, I think while we were waiting for podium results. And uh, I think it was his concept of negative capabilities, which was the which was a, a phrase he coined to mean that we need to all be satisfied and come to terms with the fact that you can never know everything and that we're going to die just ultimately not knowing all there is to know out there. And there's so much awesome knowledge to have, but you can never have all of it. Um, and so that was, uh, I think that's what he's alluding to. Oh, I like that. Two very different questions back to back. So, uh, we got about five more questions for you. Okay. So Evan Rush asks, uh, what is, uh, let's see. He just says a rail that you either had to go back to or definitely will go back to again. So uh, 
Yeah, is there anything is there anything still on the bucket list for you? And is there anything that you've had to tackle over the years that to, just to get it off your bucket list? Uh, I mean, there probably is and are, but uh, you know, it all kind of blurs together. I definitely have tricks that I always wanted to do. Uh, one of my like white buffalo tricks was uh, specifically on an urban rail. This has been done on park rails a bit. But uh, on an urban rail quad kink, uh, a back three swap to a front three swap on um, the first kink to the second kink was something I always wanted to do that will probably be done someday, I'm sure. Uh, but I would have loved to do. Uh, definitely don't have it in me anymore, so I probably won't do it. Um, but I think uh, going back to negative capabilities, you can't know everything. You also can't do everything. And so uh there's gonna be tricks that i'll just honestly have to let go um i was talking there was some comment yesterday that uh jake strassman found that he sent my way about me trying to double backflip on a snowboard i guess and i was laughing and saying if there was any trick that i wish i had done on skis that i haven't gotten around to doing it's probably a double backflip on a snowboard <laughs> um which obviously isn't on skis but yeah. so maybe i'll try to do that for a, a tc episode in the future or something yeah, that's cool, man. So um, let's see, I'm gonna try to get some of these and on a positive note. So I'm gonna try to get some of the the more negative oriented ones in here before we wrap up. So uh, Yoder, Yod.R, uh, if there's one thing you could change about the ski industry, what would it be? Ooh, wow, that's a, that's a deep one that I haven't thought a ton about. Um, I guess, I don't know, that now I think about maybe accessibility. Um, I mean, that's whole, that's the whole goal with Andy's tour is I was going to say like mentality and, and, uh, I think it's getting so serious, but I, I think, I think people choose that. I think things that people don't get to choose that have a big effect are accessibility. And unfortunately just inherently isn't accessible, but I think not inherently it's becoming more inaccessible uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, so I think that's a bummer. And I think I would make it more accessible to more people. There you go. So I'm going to flip Mason Kennedy's question. So he says, he asks, uh, what will you miss? What will you miss least about being pro? Oh man, that's <laughs> probably, there's a list of things, but you know late night studying over the years for school and thinking about this this transition um you know some hitting an urban rail at like one in the morning and being like freezing cold and so tired and exhausted and being like really scared because i've tried something very very dangerous a ton of times and every single time i hit it i have to be like fully committed uh, and it just takes everything and, you know, you're starting to get groggy, but it's something that requires all your focus not to get injured. Those are the times I think about when I'm like coding away at night and like, I'm like, oh, this sucks. I'm like, uh, this actually isn't so, so bad. So um, those really high intensity moments, which, uh, you know, oddly enough, also lead to like the ultimate high to getting those shots for the most satisfying as well, I guess. But those really scary, intense moments as you get older start to become uh, more intense than you want. So uh, the stability, I guess, of just getting to be safe at home, which is will also, I'm sure, become very boring for me too. So it's a yeah. double-edged sword. Yeah, 
And he asks, this is the first part of his question, what will you miss most about being pro? Oh man, another, a long list as well, but skiing with my friends, all the free time, uh, literally doing the exact thing I love uh, for a living. Um, you know, just uh, a super long, long list of amazing things, well, which now makes me realize actually, you know, those scary moments aren't the worst part. The worst part of, of skiing that I will miss the least is all the business stuff, actually. The emails and the contracts and the trying to get money. Uh, you know, being, being cold and standing at the top of something that scares you actually isn't from that literal skiing, that's like, yeah, definitely the least, the lowest part, but there's all this other stuff that's not actually skiing that comes along that's way less fun, uh, even than standing in the cold late night, waiting to drop in on something scary. So uh, I'll, I'll miss, that makes me realize that, yeah, just skiing with your friends will miss the most, yeah. which I can still do, but I will not be paid to do it anymore. Yeah. All right, so uh, Wammerin. Uh, he, he asked your favorite ski movie segment and math class. Ah, these are great questions. Really great questions. All right. So ski movie, uh, can't give you one. It's gotta be a tie. Sorry. Deal with it. It's going to be, uh, royalty 1242 and forward, uh, which are royalty. I think it's an Iberg movie. I want to say, uh, 1242 is like a poor boys Oakley movie. And forward is obviously a level one movie. There actually is probably other newer ones, and those are, but those are the ones when you grow up when you're a little kid, those first movies have the greatest effect on you. So off the top of my head, those are my favorite. Um, was it skier or part or segment? Did he say? Uh, segment. You could segment. say ski. You could do skier too right now if you want to give anybody a, any uh, anybody a shout out for favorite skier. Yeah. Well, segment Dave Crichton's and forward uh, is like, and it's a lot of people's and then favorite skier, Dave Crichton is one of them. Uh, also, I haven't mentioned as much, but uh, um, Andreas Hatve also huge hero of mine. So those two guys are definitely my favorite skiers. Um, and then favorite math class. Um, I think discrete structures probably uh, because it was so challenging in uh it defines a lot of the low level logic that you're required to learn as a computer scientist has a lot of combinatorics and other things that have big words like that. Um, but it was very difficult and scary, but it was when I realized that I was going to be able to get through, I didn't think I was going to be able to finish my degree. I didn't think I was smart enough. So, uh, that class was a big turning point for me. Very fun course. Wow. Cool. And then the final viewer question. This is from a, a group of friends or, and they say, uh, they asked, will we see a lifetime edit slash career, career challenge rail compilation? So are we going to see all your clips thrown together? Oh yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah. I'm, uh, well, I've had a couple people already talk to me about, uh, about putting them together. I kind of want to put one of my own together. Um, it probably won't be anytime too soon. Um, just cause I'm so focused on, I want to make sure I hit the ground running on this new area of life for me that's very foreign. Um, so I want to focus on my job for a bit, but uh, got got to throw the compilation together. So there'll be probably in the, in the next year or something, I want to make like a full uh, director's cut or whatever, athlete's cut of, of the highlights. Uh, don't hold your breath, but definitely will be down the line somewhere. Sick. 
Well, that is all of your questions, but I want to, I want to say something I've been thinking about. So you're ending your career at a, at a point that not a lot of people get. So the first, it's two things. The first thing is that you're ending on your own, on, on your own terms. You're not injured and you're not dead, which is great. And the second thing is that you're ending with people wanting more. So people aren't sick of you. So this is like probably the best, this is the best retirement that you could have had. So I'm very happy to see that for you. Thank you for coming on. It was, uh, it was awesome getting to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm, I, I like to listen to podcasts, so I've been a listener of, of the show for a bit. And, uh, so it's cool to get to be on here and, uh, yeah, super flattered that people want to ask questions or are still interested in my skiing at all. Uh, at 32, I never would have guessed that. So, uh, you know, all the support from everyone is, is so cool, uh, and just super flattering and, uh, uh, sh sh a little shocking. Um, so yeah, it's bittersweet for sure. But all I can really say is thank you so much. Hell yeah. And so do you want to leave off everybody with anything or is that all you got? I mean, just thank you. That's, I think that's the best way to end it is just thank you. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate anyone that enjoyed watching or, or interacting with me in any way. Uh, it's been a blast and hopefully, uh, you know, I'll be skiing for years to come. So uh, hopefully catch you on the chairlift. There you go.